Hello and welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Mike McShane, Director of National Research, and I am so happy to be joined over the internet, not in person yet, hopefully at some point in the reasonably near future, by my colleagues Jen Wagner and John Kristoff. And we're talking actually about a very special survey that we did. So many of you might be familiar in listening to this podcast about our monthly tracker poll that we put out, our quarterly survey of teachers. This was a specific subsample of folks, teenagers, and we were interested in their thoughts. You know, in so many ways, teenagers have kind of borne the brunt of a lot of the decisions that were made around schooling and the coronavirus. They haven't quite had the same agency, perhaps, that adults have had. And so I think it's really important to understand sort of what they're thinking about. How have they processed the last year and sort of what's what's going on there? But I know, Jen, this was kind of your idea. And I realized as that just came out of my mouth, that sort of sounded accusatory, <laughs> like as if That's my first Jen. question was going to be, how dare you? No, but this was <laughs> this was your brainchild. Let's put it that way. This was your brainchild. So maybe before we get into some of the results, if you want to talk about kind of why we did the survey, what we were hoping to accomplish. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. And, and good to be here again with you, John. So it was my brainchild, and it I actually wasn't even my brainchild so much as my child was the inspiration for this. Back last year, we were about six months into our work with Morning Consult, and the pandemic was obviously well underway, and schooling had been massively disrupted. And, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and we were just kind of talking through how she was feeling and what was going on. And all that came to a, a logical conclusion of, huh, I wonder if we can ask other teenagers how they're dealing with this and, and how they're feeling through the pandemic and how they feel about whether or not they have choices in their, in their schooling. And it turns out Morning Consult, by a stroke of luck, has the ability to reach out to 12 to 17-year-olds as one of their many audiences that we can tap into. And so we did our first survey of teens, released it back in August of last year, and we thought, okay, that was really interesting to peek into their minds mid-pandemic. Why not come back and do the same thing over now that we're hopefully nearing the end of things and, and they've got a lot more schooling under their belt in whatever model their school chose. So that is how we got here today. So I owe it all to my 13-year-old that we are able to talk about our latest round of results. Wonderful. And yes, yeah, so, so this poll was in the field from February 22nd to the 24th of 2021. And uh, sort of as as Jen said, we were aiming for the 12 to 17 year olds. I think there were some 12, 13 year olds were in there, but in total, we have results from a thousand teenagers. So, John, I might throw this first to you. So, we'll pull out again. All this stuff is available on our website at choice.morningconsultintelligence.com. And, you know, along with our, as we said, with our monthly and quarterly general population and teacher surveys. But I want to pull out a slide that stood out to me, and it's probably worth lingering on for a moment. So we asked this question, since the coronavirus pandemic started in March of 2020, how have each of the following changed for you? So we asked questions about stress, anxiety, personal mental health, everything to personal physical health and relationship with immediate families. And they had this option. They could say it's, it's gotten much better. It's gotten somewhat better. It's stayed about the same, somewhat worse, much worse. Now, when I first look at this, I mean, there are a couple of very, very negative ones, stress and anxiety. Morning Consult very kindly calculated the net, kind of net better. So you take all the people who said better, you subtract the people who said worse. And something like stress is like a negative 50. So there were, you know, 50 percentage points more people who said that they were doing worse than doing better. Anxiety is a, a negative 39. Personal mental health is a negative 32. I mean, it seems this was rough 
I mean, it was it was difficult to look at this and not see something rough. But when you look at this chart, what do you see? Obviously, I see a lot of kids, a lot of teenagers that are unhappy right now. And I'm a person who, on these kinds of podcasts, I tend to bring a lot of different answers in. And one answer will make me think of a lot of other answers that we've seen either in the same survey or previous surveys or, or, or other questions. And I kind of do the same thing here. Uh, stress, I feel like, is a common word with school generally. But, you know, we specifically ask since last year, at the same time of the school year, how have you been? And almost no one is saying better and anxiety is not anymore up. I'm just reading the same numbers that you did, Mike. And, and so I think, to me, what are the causes of this? Like, that's the million dollar question, right? And obviously, kids have spent a lot of time outside of regular school in the last 12 months. But we also have some numbers that a lot of kids are still going to school at least part of the time, but schools aren't necessarily returning entirely back to normal. And to kind of illustrate what I mean there, I'm going to reference another question that we have in this survey that's kind of in the same vein. Um, it's, it's not actually a question. It's, a, it's If you go to slide seven, if you will, on our slide deck online, you can see that morning consult broke down the answers to these questions by demographic and by learning mode. And what I noticed is that, you know, there was still like an overall negative response by people who were learning completely in person at the time they took the survey. It was much worse from teens who were completely online, but it was as equally bad between teens who were partially online and entirely online. So what's something that there is in common between partially online and completely online? Something that I'm thinking of, and this was inspired a little bit by a survey I saw Reuters had done recently, is schools that are not entirely in person are very unlikely to have extracurricular activities and programs and things like that for teenagers that we maybe associate with high school. So, you know, your robotics club is probably still canceled. Theater is probably still not an option. And when I think of what I did in high school and what I know a lot of my peers did in high school, things that were stress relieving, things that maybe you looked forward to going to school every day was stuff that happened afterward of the socialization that happened there, of exploring creativity or just learning more about something within your interests. A lot of those programs are probably still canceled for a lot of kids, even if they are at least you know partially in person. So, I mean, no one answer is going to completely <laughs> describe all the different reasons because there's multitudes of reasons that we could spend this entire podcast talking about why kids are more unhappy. But when I see that there is essentially equal unhappiness between partially online and entirely online, it makes me think there's something more than just the education itself going on here, I think. Yeah. And Jen, you know, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You know, Morning Consult also in another sort of slide for us made a word cloud. So we asked the teenagers what three words best describe how you feel about school right now. And so, you know, the, the the size of the word lets you know how frequently it came up. Top five emotions, stressed, boring, stressful, tired, unmotivated, sort of jives with this. But I would also be interested in your thoughts in the slide that John was just talking about, where we kind of look at this net, all these things. The only thing that was better on net was better since then was relationships with immediate family. 
So I'm sort of interested in that as well. So it's all this the stressed, anxious, personal mental health is going down and, and you know, again, so, so difficult and all of these things that they're they're struggling with. But there was this one bit of like that relationships with immediate family seem to be more positive than negative. So how, how do you make sense of all of that? Yeah, and I was actually going to key in on that because I don't like to be all Debbie Downer about uh, everything else on that slide, which is pretty negative. Real quick, I think John's onto something with the extracurricular other activities and not just related to school. I think, you know, as we look back over the past year and look at some of the CDC guidance that came out, you know, initially, I think we treated all kids the same. But as the pandemic went on, we started to realize, okay, some of these younger grade levels, these younger kiddos are not as susceptible to the coronavirus. So maybe they can, you know, go back to doing the things that they were doing. Whereas these older kids got lumped in with all of us grownups and, you know, their risk assessment was much the same. And so you're right. Like, I think about my daughter, like she's a swimmer and she hasn't been able to be in the swimming pool with her team for more than a year. And it takes such a mental toll on her because she loves the sport, but she can't do it. And, you know, she keeps asking, like, when's the team going to come back? When's the team going to come back? And I, I don't have a good answer for her because these teenagers get lumped in again more with, with adults in terms of how we've treated them throughout the pandemic. But yeah, I think you raise a really good point, Mike, about that last question we asked about, you know, the indicator that we asked was, you know, how are your relationships with your immediate family? And this was the only one that we had that quote unquote net better score and in, in the positives. And it was only six points. And that's again, that's total better minus total worse. But you've got, you know, 33% of kids reporting that they now have, you know, better relationships or much better relationships with their immediate family. And I think, you know, as I kind of anecdotally talk with my friends and read, you know, social media, that's been a large part of the pandemic that for those families, I want to qualify for those families who, you know, have the resources, were not, had, did not have their livelihoods threatened, you know, are not frontline workers where they are very stressed. But for those families who were able to take advantage of this time at home, it seems like the teenagers are bearing out what the parents are saying. You know, it's been a really kind of a nice time to, you know, work through your top 100 movie list or, you know, go out in the yard and, and throw the baseball. And again, anecdotally and personally, that's been true in our house. It's been really nice to get to spend more time and not be over-programmed and going from this to that and have tons and tons of homework. So if there can be a positive in this question, hopefully it's that people got to spend a little bit more time with, uh, with their teens. I will say for our diligent listeners here, I want to reward them. There's some research that I am working on right now where we've done some polling of homeschooling families and others. And I hope all of you remember what Jen was just speaking about there because it will be reinforced by data to come in the future. That's a little, it's a little Easter egg. You know, the real fans will see, you know, what's it like at Disneyland? You see the, the Mickey Mouse is hiding places. People are going to go back and you're going to remember this. But and no, I agree, Jen. And I think that, uh, as I said, only more data will come out to back up what you just said. You know, John, I do want to kind of come back to something you were talking about earlier. So one of these questions we asked the students about, as you brought up the in-person versus in-person and online versus completely online. In our sample of students, 16% of kids were completely in-person at the time of the survey. 37 were in a mix of in-person and online, and 45% were completely online. And kind of what you brought up there, which was the mix of in-person and online. So we asked the question, you know, how is it going? They could answer very well, somewhat well, not that well, not well at all. 
what we found was that for the students that were completely in person, sort of overwhelmingly answered either very well or somewhat well. It came down for a mix of in-person online and completely online, but it was still, you know, those numbers were not as low as I thought they would be. So for, for the mix of in-person online, 18% they were said that it was going very well, 46% were saying somewhat well, so it's definitely more positive than negative. The same was true for completely online, 22% very well, 41% somewhat well. So again, you know, we're, we're in the 60s there of both of these. So I'm sort of interested in some ways, it seems to me like, yes, it is true that it seems like in-person students liked more than the others, but it's not like they hated the others. So, and I should say, before I have you answer that, I know this has been an, an absolutely fraught conversation talking about these things. This is the point where we have to insert the disclaimer that says, we just ask people's opinions. So this isn't like they don't work for the CDC of saying whether what was a good idea or they're not education researchers saying what's a good idea or a bad idea. We're just asking how it impacted them. So, you know, take it take it with a grain of salt. But again, what they said was that in-person was went better, but that the other two, it's not that they necessarily went poorly. They went better than they did worse. So how do you like think through all of that? Yeah, it is interesting that majorities in all three categories basically said school's going good. It, it is also kind of jarring to try to interpret that after learning about all of the mental and personal like struggles that teenagers have been having over over the past year. So that's you know kind of striking point number one. Striking point number two, at least for me, I kind of wonder. I, I see these numbers of of completely in person where what is it eighty percent say school's going at least somewhat well, and I'm trying to think if there was ever a point in my life where I could ask my my peers if school was going that well, and four out of five of them would say yes, I don't know. So I don't know if there's just a lot of positivity about going back to that routine and back to that you know the the in person socialization so I'm not quite sure because we didn't ask them to specify academics. We were just asking, hey, how is school going, given your format? I think the most significant thing to me is that even though there are majorities of partially and completely online saying that school is going at least somewhat well, the enthusiasm behind them is much lower. So, you know, I, again, I recommend, you know, if, if people are at home checking out the, the slide decks online because it's, it's helpful to visualize this you know whereas the completely in-person results for very well are 44 percent it's 18 percent for partially online and 22 percent for completely online so half or like less than half of enthusiasm for very well and i think that's important because that's a student thinking beyond like it's going fine it's going okay and it's, some, it's a student saying like, yeah, I'm enjoying it, or yeah, I'm getting something out of it. And there's a, a huge chunk, what I'm trying to say is a huge chunk of the students that are saying school's going well for partially and completely online are somewhat as opposed to very, whereas there are more students in person saying school is going very well than somewhat well. That's a so, great point. Yeah, you know, it's hard to dissect exactly why, but there is there is something that in-person students are are saying there was something I am actively gaining through this now that I'm back in person. I feel like that's an important takeaway. 
So Jen, maybe one piece of data that you could bring into this was we asked students about whether or not they should have some say in what type of school they attended this year and then whether or not they actually did. And we saw a gap in some places between, you know, students saying that they would like to have more say in where they go to school, but then not actually having that in reality. Do you think that's maybe part of this, which is like the degree to which kids are saying they're liking something or not, some part of that's tied in that they feel like they didn't have control over the situation? I absolutely do. And I think John makes some really good points about that prior slide. And, you know, again, we only ask people like, hey, how well is it going? I would love to know more of how those two slides compare with each other. So of the you know students who told us, hey, you know what, this completely online thing isn't going all that well, struggling, I have poor internet access, I, you know, my brain wanders off, whatever, you know, how many of those students had a say in that particular schooling mode and what would they have chosen otherwise? You know, and I think this leads us in, you know, preview of coming attractions in about three minutes, but it leads us into the conversation that I know, Mike, you've obviously had before the pandemic about that sort of hybrid model. How does that work? Do kids really want to be in that environment? Do parents want to be in that environment? Because I think you are seeing a gap between how involved teenagers are in their schooling choice and how involved they want to be. And I think that's been reflected out in those, hey, how's it going questions. Were they involved in that choice? Would they like to be involved in that choice? And if they could, what would they choose? Jen, I'm so happy that you brought that up because now I don't feel as guilty of just doing some shameless self-promotion. But there was a question on here. Many of you are probably aware. If you're if you're not at this point, then I don't know if you've been zoned out of every one of the podcasts I've been on recently. But I do have my new book out, Hybrid Homeschooling, A Guide to the Future of Education. And in some of our podcasts that we've done about our general population survey, we've asked about would people be amenable to this idea of hybrid homeschooling in the future where, where students attend formal classes for part of the week and they're schooled at home for part of the week? So we asked our teens this. And interestingly, 44% of teens said that they would prefer some kind of hybrid schooling. So that maybe they only go to school four days a week, three days a week. Interestingly, you know, and, and again, it's, it sort of aligns with our polling generally. So we asked both parents and teens, or we, we compared that to our February tracker poll. You know, 14% of parents said that they would want to do full-time homeschooling or full-time schooling at home, even if it's virtual or remote learning. 21% of teens said that they were into that. So what I found fascinating was that teenagers were much more likely to say that they would want either full-time homeschooling they were slightly less likely to say that they would want some kind of hybrid homeschooling, but still 44% said that they would be into that. Only 34% of teenagers said that they want to go back to full-time, five-day-a-week schooling. So I maybe you all don't have to necessarily um, weigh in on that one. I personally find that very interesting. I think it aligns with you know the research in my book. I had the opportunity to talk to students. You know, All of the students that I talked to really liked the model. And for lots of reasons, interestingly, kind of aligned to a lot of these issues around mental health, stress, anxiety, all of those things. Many of the students I talked to and their parents that I interviewed brought up the fact that that hybrid model was much better for their mental health. The schedule better fit the rhythms of their families. They had more quality time. It was a more supportive environment. So this one will be interesting to watch in the future. We'll see how that goes. As I have said the caveat of many of these things, hey, I don't want to come off just as a shameless self-promoter that these uh, that these numbers are what they are. And again, these are preferences. We'll see whether it actually shows up. 
But, you know, one of the questions that we asked, and it's fascinating, you know, children are uh, the future. Like, was that Whitney Houston? Am I right in saying? Is that the greatest love of all? I believe oh. the children are our future. Partially, exactly. I'm reminded of this. I just watched um, <laughs> Coming to America 2 on Amazon. Recommend it. But there's the, uh, the, the version of that song in the original from back in the 80s. But recommend it. It was funny. But so we asked this question, given the fact that, that children are our future, whether Whitney Houston said that or not, um, we asked these questions about what issues are most important to them. And we gave them a, a list of things to choose from, everything from the COVID-19 pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement, climate change, to abortion, immigration, affordable housing. You know, we, they, they had a whole bunch to choose from. And we asked them to pick their top three. We included education reform in that list, though it should be said, you know, it's not in the top five. So the top five things that they're interested in are their priority issues. COVID-19 pandemic, which with about 60% of respondents saying that that's in their top three. Black Lives Matter movement with 50% in their top three. Climate change, 37% in the top three. LGBTQ rights, 36%. And then school reopenings, 29%. So I'd be interested in what y'all think. So this, uh, is this the, well, Lord willing, the COVID-19 pandemic will not continue to shape our politics when these teenagers become uh, sort of voting and participating adults in our society. But looking at the whole swath of these issues, is this the future of our politics? Is this sort, sort of flash in the pan type issues? What did y'all see when you saw this prioritization of, of the issues that they care about? I'm happy to jump in here because yeah, I live it every day uh, with the teenager. And I think, you know, I think people do tend to oversimplify this age group and say, oh, they just see what's right in front of them. They only care about what's on, you know, TV or, or their social media platforms, which we'll get to in a second. They do care about school reopenings. I mean, this issue affects them. It is front and center. But, you know, I think we asked them about education reform. They're like, I don't really know what that means, right? I see... You know, my daughter sees um, CNN 10 in her classroom every morning, right? And yesterday they were talking about, is Amazon a monopoly? So we had a long conversation about why Amazon is actually not a monopoly, side note. But, you know, that's what they see. They spent 10 minutes on that. They see the COVID-19 coverage. They see Black Lives Matter rallies. They see climate change stories. And so that's front and center. I will use this as an opportunity, and then I will shut up and let John talk, to shamelessly promote our new TikTok channel at EdShow. I was just... See, there you, so go. Many, you beat me to the punch because <laughs> I was actually going to promote that. So outstanding. I'm glad you're bringing this up. Yeah. And so one of the challenges I think we face as school choice advocates is, are we speaking the same language that the next generation of advocates is speaking? And are we actually getting in front of them where they go to get their news, their information? And so both both of you are our new TikTok reps from our research world. If you want to check it out, we're over there on TikTok at edchoice.official because there was actually someone who is named, I think, Ed Choice, who has the at Ed Choice handle. But we're, we're trying it that, out. Ed. I know, right? It's a real bummer. We, we tried to reach out to him and see if he'd give it up. But uh, look, we're trying to get out there in places where teenagers who are soon to be our decision makers and voters are going for their information so that they can get the right information and so that hopefully we can you know, raise ed reform and school choice up that list of issues they care about. Yes, and so as Jen brought up, maybe our last kind of question we can talk about here was social media platform use. So we asked this question, which of the following do you use? They could select up to three options. So the top things that we saw, YouTube, 95%, I think, put them in their, in their top three, then texting, 
Instagram phone calls. I gotta be honest, that one kind of surprised me, right? I thought this was, I thought phone calls were done and the kids only texted. It shows how ridiculously out of step I am. But phone calls, then video calls, then Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch, which I think I can I can safely say I've never watched anything on Twitch. Then Reddit, chat rooms, again, didn't know those still existed. WhatsApp, which I think, don't sleep on WhatsApp. That's a great, it's a great platform. But anyway, Visco, VSCO, which I literally have no idea what that is. And then Tumblr. So when you all look at this sort of stuff, and, and we also were able to chart the kind of growth between August of 2020, we saw big growth in Twitch, big growth in Reddit, big growth in video calls, probably shouldn't surprise us, but also growth in phone calls. So John, resident young person here, not quite 12 to 17, but certainly closer than I am. How do you see these platforms? And and frankly, kind of to what Jen was talking about, how do you see the interplay between sort of work broadly construed, like what we do in, in research or in advocacy or those, how does that intersect with these platforms that kids are using to get their information and communicate with one another? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to act. I, I can be the resident quote unquote young person. I am, I am still on the border of, of millennial age, which is apparently old now, according to a common and colleague of ours made in a meeting earlier. But I also don't want to be like resident comms person because we do have that person here. But I can say that, you know, I grew up in a different age of information than I guess at least my parents did. So I'm just going to use them in my head as, as a comparison group. For a long time, digital information or in a rather just broad telecommunication outside of print, which took a long time to circulate and 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 things like that. It was largely through television and, and through radio, and people had very limited time to get their message out, but they had a huge audience if they were able to get a media hit there. And now, like, information is, is just so widely available, and yet demand for it has also never been higher. So I think a big part of advocacy work is figuring out how to navigate that information space, if I can speak really high level about it. So there's so many teenagers out there who want to learn about things. They are information sponges, and they will pick up all sorts of things, whether it is entertainment or something more educational. But there's also a degree to which that line is blurring quite a bit. And so you've got to go where kids are going for information where everybody's going for information. So, you know, YouTube, I think was a huge game changer, you know, even like, I don't even know how long it was ago, almost 15 years ago in, I was going to say democratizing, but maybe decentralizing video information and giving people control of video information to give out to people. And even, you know, 10 years ago, Philip DeFranco was a super popular YouTuber just breaking down news for kids that that was really popular among kids so they could understand everything that was going on on cable news that their parents were watching in a way that they understood. And he was a game changer. And, you know, TikTok is the thing now. And I think if you want to get your message out there, you can't wait for kids to come to you, for people to come to you. You have to figure out how to speak in a language that they're interested in listening in and also in a way that makes sense to them. For sure. Jen, I'll give you the last word here. Tying all this again, this was your idea, and I mean that in the best sense of it, but sort of your your kind of takeaway from all of this. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, I guess I say that as the resident old person and mom of a teenager. I, yeah, what everything John just said is is a hundred percent. And we can't sit around, and this is true in all advocacy work. We can't sit around and wait for the would-be advocates to come to us. But there has been just a, and I would use the word democratizing, a, you know, a, a flattening of the ability not just to have to get earned media and have stories get out there and information out there through that very limited group of outlets um, to, you know, I mean, YouTube, the very name of the platform. It's you as a person. You're the television. You're the conduit. You're the content creator. And that's so cool. And I think as we, you know, for me as a mom, as we walk away from this round of the teen survey and, you know, spoiler alert, there will probably be, uh, we'll probably check back in with this group in another six months or so. You know, I think it's really, really important that we listen to them. My 13-year-old tells me all the time, like, oh, mom, I hate being called just another teen. You know, I, I, I have thoughts and opinions. And they do. And if we do our job as advocates, if we do our job as parents, we can really tap into something. I mean, they're open to new ideas. They're open to this, you know, this hybrid model they've been thrust into over the past year. They are sponges for information. So we got to make sure we're giving them, giving them the right information, giving them factual information, and really empowering them as the next generation, not just of choice advocates, but as parents who are, are going to be choosing potentially for their kids and to just, just help them grow into that choice-oriented, that choice-centric mindset that I think we all have, but we didn't come up through a choice-based system. They are, and, and if we can keep that going, gosh, the sky's the limit. I am such a Pollyanna today, but it's, it's just really cool to be able to tap into their uh, thoughts and opinions. For sure, absolutely. Well, look, Jen, John, it was great to be with you today chatting about this. As Jen said, look forward to more of this stuff in the future and also look forward to our future conversations about our general population surveys and our teacher survey. I do want to give a shout out. I, I have been remiss and I want to apologize. I feel I should end this podcast every time with a special shout out to Jacob Vinson, who produces this podcast, who edits it. I like it. You won't even know, but I flubbed something earlier in this and he's going to make me not sound like a moron. We wouldn't be able to do this without him, and I feel like a garbage person for not having acknowledged him long before this. So, Jen, it's been great to be with you. John, it's been great to be with you. Jacob, you're a star, and I look forward to talking to all of you again in the future on another edition of Ed Choice Chats.